Hello, and welcome to today's edition of Tabernacle Today, a podcast maintained by the Tabernacle located in Danville, Virginia. The following lesson is by Dr. Danny Campbell, senior pastor at the Tabernacle, and was recorded during our Wednesday evening Bible study. Additional information about the Tabernacle can be found at our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. Our prayer is that you will be blessed by the Word of God today. Turn in your Bibles as we join Dr. Danny for another edition of Tabernacle Today. All right, well, hopefully you've already turned to Psalm 6. We're going to be in Psalm 6 tonight. Uh, listen, if you uh, didn't already get a note sheet, we've got a couple note sheets over here. Gary, can you help the, them with a couple note sheets? Maybe I think we need, y'all got yours? Okay, so three or four sheets are out there. Psalm 6. And the description here, I'm, I'm reading from the New King James, is a prayer of faith in time of distress. But then we get into what the um, uh, editorial comment that the psalm collectors uh, put in there. It says, To the chief musician, with stringed instruments, on an eight-stringed harp, or sheminith, <laughs> and it's a psalm of David. So uh, several descriptors there of what it says. And then we read, it says, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chasten me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. My soul also is greatly troubled. But you, O Lord, how long? Return, O Lord, deliver me. O save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there is no remembrance of you. In the grave, who will give you thanks? I am weary with my groaning. All night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity. For the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. The Lord has heard my supplication. The Lord will receive my prayer. Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly." Psalm chapter 6. I'll tell you, a lot of just uh, raw uh, emotion in there, huh, as David pours out his prayer uh, to the Lord. And we saw in the title, it says, this is another song to be accompanied with stringed instruments, according to Sheminith, and some people think that might be a harp. Uh, but the word Sheminith is related to the word for eight, so uh, the number eight. So if uh, you're trying to get, hear, hear me what I'm saying there, it's the number eight. Let me put it up here on the board. Sheminith has some relation to the number eight, which is very interesting. Um, perhaps David is referring to the eight-stringed instrument or to an eight-note melody to which the psalm was to be sung. Some people wonder, is this an ancient reference to the octave? The octave. Uh, so an octagon, an octave, right? Eight notes in something. And this psalm is kind of a personal lament. It fits within the category of trouble and trust psalms. So a lot of the psalms we read, uh, they describe a troublesome situation they're encountering and the fact that they're committed to trusting God even in the midst of this troublesome situation. I tell you, the older I get, the more life I experience, the more I like the psalms. I think I said to some of y'all a few weeks ago, I, I ran into a 20-year-old um, or so, a 21, 22-year-old, and I was talking to them and said, I just don't get the psalms. And I kind of grinned at him and said, you will. 
You will. Uh, the Psalms will become a dear friend to you as the years pass and you encounter some of the hard things in life. Uh, you'll get things in there you didn't think you'd get when you were 20. And so keep going back there because the Psalms are good. You know, uh, years ago I encountered the idea of reading a proverb a day because there's 31 proverbs and the longest months have 31 days in them. And so Proverbs, uh, the, if you read the proverb for the day sometime during the day, it's a great blessing to you. It really is a uh, free course in wisdom as you go through a month. And, um, you know, I remember as a 25-year-old or so, somebody said, Danny, you're wise beyond your years. And I said, they said, what's the secret? I said, a proverb a day, because I'm not a very wise person. I'm a knucklehead, you know. But a proverb a day has uh, given me God's wisdom, a uh, course on God's wisdom. Psalms, there's 150 psalms, and some people uh, sometime during the day do uh, the five psalms of the day. So they would do Psalm 1 on the first day of the month, Psalm 31, Psalm 61, Psalm 91, Psalm 121. Uh, you know, uh, that's a lot more scripture to read than just the proverb of the day. Uh, but it can be a blessing too. So, you know, just whatever it takes. Uh, there are, I like those Bible reading programs that have you going through the New Testament uh, multiple times in the year, the whole Old Testament at least once. Some of those reading plans have a way also to get you through the Proverbs and the Psalms multiple times during the year as well. So anyway, uh, David seems to indicate the source of his trouble is not from without, it's also from within. So there's your second fill in the blank there, the word within. And in the first three verses, it appears David is kind of confessing sin. He doesn't mention his enemies in this psalm, as I can see, until verse 7. And because of this, it's been called the first of the penitential psalms. And uh, that's a long way. It sounds like penitentiary, but you hear repentance in there, penitential uh, where you're uh, repenting as you're laying out your sins before the Lord. Sorrow, Spurgeon said there's sorrow for sin in verses 3, 6, and 7. There's humiliation for sin in verses 2 and 4. And there's hatred of sin in verse 8. Charles Spurgeon. Perhaps David understood what we need to. We are often our own worst enemy. Have y'all figured that out about life yet? Man, I'll tell you what, when I, when I, uh, every, every once in a while I think about having a problem with somebody else and then the Lord doesn't take long before I realize the number one problem I have with is the guy with the, the man in the mirror, right? Uh, I've sabotaged my own success so many times, you know, and you got to get back and just take it to the Lord. And it reminds me of Paul's honesty in Romans 7. Uh, well, I'll tell you what, um, sometimes Christians debate about whether Romans 7 is the thoughts of a lost man who doesn't know Christ or the thoughts of a Christian who's struggling. It's settled in my mind, it's a true Christian who's struggling, right? Uh, Paul says, I do the things I don't want to do. Is that ever true of you? I don't do enough of the things I want to do. So I wind up doing the things I know not to do. I wind up not doing enough of what I know I should do for the Lord. And if that's you, you're in good company. And David seems to be reflecting on his own sinful heart and condition and fighting against it here. And Paul does that in Romans 7, even as Paul comes up with the conclusion, thank God there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, you know, because of the gospel, because of grace. Uh, we are where we need to be when we can sing. We are where we need to be when we can sing, it's me, it's me, it's me, O Lord, standing in the need of prayer. And some of the Psalms remind us of that. I think Psalm 6 is one of those. 
uh, we need God's help to overcome the old nature, and it's a daily struggle. So uh, the old nature is all you have before you're a Christian. You're dead in trespasses and sins, the Bible says, and so you just naturally gravitate towards sin, and then you become a Christian, and all of a sudden your new nature gets activated. Um, your soul uh, becomes alive and it is going to work on your mind to think different thoughts, your body to do different actions, and you're going to have this old nature and this new nature fighting the rest of your earthly life. So there's going to be this constant draw back to old ways like gravity, and there's going to be this um, constant desire to please God now. Uh, Paul in Romans 7 says, now that I know the Lord, he said, I, I agree in my inner man with what God says. But I find inside of me a desire to do that which displeases God. There's this battle going on. Here's the best way I like to liken it. The old sin nature is kind of like the coals of a fire. You know, uh, you think, okay, they're out, but if you put a log on them the next morning, they start burning again, right? If you feed that fire, it grows. And for the believer, I believe the best analogy is to think those, those coals of the sin nature never go away. If you feed them, you can have a, a forced fire all over again in your life. And so you want to starve that fire out. You want to do what God says and just, uh, you know, knowing that praise the Lord when you go to heaven, you won't have to deal with that at all, you know, which is kind of neat. So I think that's why Jesus said, if we wanted to be his followers, what do we need to do? Can you remember? What did he say to us we need to do if we really want to be his followers? Deny self, die to self, take up our cross daily, right? Uh, deny self, die to self, and follow Jesus daily. It's as if Jesus is saying to us we need to start each day by having kind of a funeral service for the part of us that would seek self-interest before Christ's interest. Okay, well now let's look at this psalm out of order a little bit. So for me, the best way to look at this particular psalm is to jump into verses 6 and 7, where David experiences great grief and anguish. Uh, he says, I am weary with my groaning, and all night I make my bed swim. I drench my couch with my tears. My eye wastes away because of grief. It grows old because of all my enemies. Anybody here ever had grief like that? I know some of you have. I have. Um, and it will tire you out when you're grieving. Um, he's weary from groaning. He's been crying his eyes out. His eyes are swollen because of all the enemies lined up against him. And if you've ever felt like the world is out to get you, well, David had been there. If you ever feel like your circumstances are really out to get you, David had been there. And he acknowledges that. He's experiencing great grief and anguish. And so uh, a trouble, the trouble that he's going through. And then we go back to verses 1 and 3, and we see this grief and anguish had affected his overall health. You know, if you, if you uh, are tore up long enough and grieving long enough, you know, and in a great anguish long enough, and constant stress, it can affect your overall health. Um, so, verses 1 to 3, O Lord, do not rebuke me in your anger, nor chase me in your hot displeasure. Have mercy on me, O Lord, for I am weak. O Lord, heal me, for my bones are troubled. He, he's going to say this again in Psalm 32 about how his very bones seemed weak uh, because of uh, the sin that he dealt with. My soul also is greatly troubled, but you, O Lord, how long? So he acknowledges that he deserves to be rebuked. In verse 1, David acknowledges his biggest problem is that God is judging his sin. Don't rebuke me in your anger, God, nor chase me in your hot displeasure. So that's about spiritual health. In verse 2, David is withered and troubled in his bones. They're shaking, so that's physical health. 
So he's got some spiritual health uh, things that are behind some other things, the physical health. The word vexed or troubled uh, in verse 2, some of your translations might read vexed, appears in verse 3. Uh, this time about his whole being, including his soul. So not only are his bones troubled, verse 3 says his soul also is greatly troubled. So that includes emotional health, right? And uh, have you ever seen that happen to someone? They're so torn up with grief, they begin to waste away, you know, and make some poor decisions that further complicates their issue. Um, think about good old Johnny Cash, you know. Uh, he died just a few months after June Cash. Uh, and uh, some people do literally die of a broken heart. You know, they just don't want to go on. And um, this is where I think each of us needs to come to a Philippians 1 type perspective. I love Philippians 1 where Paul says, For to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And uh, he says, I have a desire to depart and be with Christ. That's far better for anybody. But I also recognize that if I stayed on, it'd be better for those that I influence for Christ. Um, and uh, so uh, just that perspective that uh, God has a purpose and plan until it's our time. We want to live for His glory. We want to make the biggest impact we can on family, friends, church folk, others that we neighbor, neighbors and everything. And in His perfect timing, He'll call us up, you know, and uh, that can help us go on. In verses 4 and 5, uh, David cries out for life. So there's your fill in the blank. He wants to keep making a difference. So he says, return, O Lord, deliver me. So... He says, Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. For in death there's no remembrance of you in the grave. Who will give you thanks? Return, O Lord, deliver me. Oh, save me for your mercy's sake. So even though uh, he, he's, you know, having these struggles, he, he, he wants to have a revival time with God. He wants to keep going. Uh, I can't help but think of, I don't know how many of y'all used to watch the old wrestling. I haven't seen this in pro wrestling in a while. But uh, back in the old Ric Flair and uh, Wahoo McDaniel and all those days and things like that, every once in a while, one of them old boys would be, you know, they'd be laid down on the mat, right? And their hand would be out like this. And the referee would take it and drop it and it dropped to the mat, right? And the referee would take it up again and again, it would drop to the mat. And everybody thought, oh, no, he's taking that hand up the third time. That hand drops down to the mat. He's going to count my hero out. And that'll be the end of the match, right? And uh, he would, the referee would drop that hand and it would start falling toward the mat. And then the, you'd see this number, you know, like all of a sudden there's life there. There's fight still left in our hero and stuff like that. That's kind of how I read this psalm. You like that? <laughs> you remember that? <laughs> that's right. Haystack Calhoun. Wow, that's going back, going back. Um, but it's kind of like that. Uh, he wants to, he, he, he's, he's, see what's happening here is like a lot of the Psalms, he's got trouble, but he's starting to preach to himself and he's starting to cry out to God. God can help me in this. God can help me keep on wanting to go on. Uh, he's, he's, he's not done with me yet, you know. Um, now, let's talk about the word Sheol. Uh, so when he says in verse 5, for in death, some of your translations just say Sheol there, and they should because that's the Hebrew word. And so in the Old Testament, when people would die, they would go to Sheol. So we hear Sheol, and um, we need to understand what it was in the Old Testament, what it corresponds to in the New Testament, and whether or not, uh, and how it corresponds to what's to come when Revelation 20 talks about the lake of fire. So let's just do that for a moment or two. Sheol in the Old Testament was a holding tank for all the dead. Uh, 
but it appears to have been divided into two sections, one for the righteous and one for the ungodly. Uh, and um, so people, uh, when they're talking about dying, they would talk about going to Sheol, and that would happen for a righteous person. It would happen for an ungodly person, but it appears they were divided. Um, in Psalm 23, David expresses hope that he's going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. In another Psalm, he expresses his hope to forever gaze on the beauty of the Lord. Um, but here he is saying, talking about that if I die, I'll be in death, I'll be in Sheol. And so part of him knows there's something to come, there's life to come, but also that after when you die, you're in Sheol. Now, does anybody know what the Greek word that the New Testament uses that's basically equivalent to the Old Testament Hebrew Sheol? So, uh, anybody? Hades. Hades. Very good. Okay, so uh, I'm going to put OT here. That means Old Testament Sheol. And New Testament equals Hades. And it's talking about the same place, that place where people would go after they die. And uh, so um, in Luke 16, remember Jesus telling the story of the rich man and Lazarus? Uh, he talks about how Lazarus was in Abraham's bosom being comforted while the rich man was being tormented, but they were both aware of the existence of the other, uh, even though they couldn't correspond with one another. Um, and so you're going to find as we read through the Psalms, uh, it talking about lower parts of Sheol. It's going to talk about uh, the wicked going there and not really uh, coming back. You know, it's going to talk about the righteous inheriting the earth, a future expectation of uh, righteous folks living on earth. We think of Job's expectation when he said, I know my Redeemer lives, and after my body's destroyed, this I know that in my flesh, in my new flesh, I will see God. Uh, and so you have that there. But turn to Ephesians chapter 4. Ephesians chapter 4. Sometimes when we talk about Christ and His work for us on the cross and His resurrection, uh, we forget that there was a day between the cross and the resurrection, right? So He dies for us on a Friday. He's raised on a Sunday. On Saturday, it's often thought of as Silent Saturday. And we wonder, was He doing anything during that time? We think about Him telling the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise, and some of the other things the Scriptures talk about. Now, since I told you to go to Ephesians 4, I better find it uh, here. Uh, Ephesians 4, verses 8 through 10. Verse 8 of Ephesians 4 says, Therefore God says, He says, When He ascended on high, He led captivity captive and gave gifts to men. Verse 9 says, Now this He ascended, what does it mean but that He also first descended into the lower parts of the earth? He who descended is also the one who ascended far above all the heavens, that He might fill all things. Hmm. Okay. Let's also read 1 Peter 3. So Ephesians turn to 1 Peter 3. And this is a real head-scratcher of a passage for uh, many people, but it looks like it fits with uh, some of what we know here. 1 Peter 3, verses 18 and 19. It says there, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that He might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, 
but made alive by the Spirit, by whom also he went and preached to the spirits in prison. Verse 20 says, who formerly were disobedient, when once the divine long-suffering weighed in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight souls, were saved through water, those who were on the ark when the judgment came. But again, verse 19, by whom also Jesus went and preached to the spirits in prison who formerly were disobedient. People go, well, what was that about? What was that about? So you got Sheol, and we call it Hades in the Greek, was the place that all the dead went to before Jesus came to earth and died for our sins on the cross. It looks like when you read between the lines and factor in all the scriptures that we uh, can bring to bear on all this, that uh, after he died on the cross, before he rose from the dead, Jesus descended to Hades, to Sheol. And there it looks like he had a twofold message to those that had always believed in God and God's future provision of the Messiah, he basically said, hey, listen, you know, your faith is now being rewarded by being able to now that I finally paid the penalty for sin, I'm going to take your spirits with me to heaven. For those of you who never received God, didn't believe in God, and are rebels against God, will never be with Him, you're going to stay here in Hades or Sheol, awaiting the future judgment of the lake of fire. Okay. There's a passage, I believe it's in Matthew's gospel, that says after Jesus' resurrection, some tombs opened in Jerusalem, and saints were seen who hadn't been seen for a while, and then they weren't seen again. Uh, and we don't know all that that means, and some people want to relate it to just a, a temporary uh, uh, for a few. Uh, but I'm among those that believe that at that time, because Jesus had paid for the penalty for sins on the cross, I think Old Testament saints since then have been in heaven with the Lord. 2 Corinthians 5 says, For the believer to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. 1 Corinthians 15 talks about a future time where believers will get new bodies. And the end of Revelation lets us know those new bodies are going to be used to live on a new earth which is exactly what Job's expectation was in Job 19 when he says, I know my Redeemer lives, and in flesh, my flesh, I'm going to see God who's also going to be in a bod. I'm going to see Him standing on the earth, you know. And we think of the second coming of Christ. We think about His rule on earth. We think about the new heavens and the new earth. Um, so all of that to come. I think about how satisfying this is when you think about how Old Testament believers, you can't find many verses that talk about their expecting to be in heaven. What you can see is them looking all the way to the end of time and expecting to inherit the earth. The righteous will inherit the earth, but the wicked's name will not be known on earth, right? You get to Revelation 20. Let's go ahead and turn there. Revelation 20. And it tells us that there's a difference between Hades and the future lake of fire. Revelation chapter 20. So again, we're in Revelation 20 verse 11. Uh, no believer will stand to have their uh, sins punished at the lake of fire. Anybody that's believed in Christ or His promises leading up to in Old Testament days, they were thinking in faith forward to the Christ. 
All of our sins were dealt with on the cross, right? But for those who reject Christ, their sins are going to be dealt with at the great white throne of judgment and then the lake of fire. So um, the... uh, Verse 11 of Revelation 20 says, Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whose face the earth and the heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in books. The sea gave up the dead who were in it, and death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one, according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. So, believers now don't go to Sheol. Their spirits go directly to the Lord, and one day God will put all the atoms back together in a glorious, perfect body. Believers will live in a new body on a new earth. That's what Revelation 21 and 22 is about. For those that are in Sheol now, they are awaiting the final judgment, and that will happen at the end, the great white throne judgment, before the events of Revelation 21 and 22. And after that time of judgment, when all go to the lake of fire who had rejected Christ, there will be no more need for the temporary place of Sheol slash Hades at all. So that's how I kind of interpret all those things uh, laying out. I love to think of what, uh, it was a Christian rapper that I first heard this from, and I thought, that's really good theology. I'm going to use that a lot. And uh, I don't know where he had gotten it from. He might have gotten it from some great theologian or pastor like John Piper or something, since this was a Reformed rapper. Uh, But um, it's the whole idea that uh, Old Testament saints, their faith was more like using a credit card. Uh, When you use a credit card, the payment still has to be made but what you purchase is yours, right? (laughs) Um, And maybe it's more like a layaway plan than the way that we're doing this where you can finally get it and bring it home like leaving Sheol and going to heaven or whatever. But um, New Testament saints, uh, it's more like a debit card. When you use a debit card, it comes right out of the account. The payment's already in there, right? So Jesus' death on the cross paid off all uh, the past faith that looked forward to the cross, the time when it was paid, and our faith is uh, from what has been paid at the cross, right? Uh, The payment's in there. So I kind of like that. So between his death and resurrection, I believe Jesus and his spirit went to Sheol. Hades emptied the righteous out of it, transporting them to heaven. So the preaching that 1 Peter speaks of, I believe, is like preaching today. It has a, had a double-edged message. For those who trusted God on earth, their time had come. They could now be led captivity captive. They could go with Jesus up to heaven, and I think they did. And uh, then um, before life reanimated his body, he also preached to those that have rejected God that their judgment would still come. So he transported the godly souls in Abraham's bosom, part of Sheol, And that may have had something to do with the graves opening in Jerusalem, Old Testament saints being seen in Jerusalem. Today when saints die, this is your fill in the blank, their spirits are transported directly into heaven. 2 Corinthians 5 does say that to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And I believe, uh, again, Sheol, Hades is the place that the departed dead that didn't know the Lord still wind up. And it's going to serve that purpose up until the great white throne. And then death and Hades will be thrown into the lake of fire. So some passages of the New Testament that speak about Hades are talking about that temporary place. 
But when we think of hell, we're often thinking of what we refer to in the future, the lake of fire. According to Luke 16's parable that Jesus spoke, and some people think it's, he's not telling a parable, he's talking about actual events. According to that, that Jesus teaches, uh, there's already torment in Sheol for the departed ungodly. There was already comfort uh, in Old Testament days for the departed godly, and there's no comfort like being in His presence there uh, in heaven. Um, in verse 5, David is not saying he does not believe death will mean a lack of consciousness. His words in verses 4 and 5 should be understood as a prayer. He's pleading with God for God to extend his life. He, he believes that God's not done with him yet, and so that's how we should understand that. Well, let me just, uh, oh, well, C.H. Spurgeon quote said, Graveyards are silent places. The vaults of the sepulcher echo not with songs. <laughs> okay. Any questions from what we talked about there with shale or uh, uh, questions you want to ask from that? Uh, sometimes when you talk about that stuff, it is a mind blower and uh, brings up some specific questions. Anybody? Brother Gary? You mentioned about uh, Luke 16, which, which I think, uh, I, I don't take it as a parable mm -hmm. because people's names. Right, right, yeah. So I, uh, that's the reason I don't. If the person that was the rich man that died and went to hell uh, was in torment, mm -hmm. I would say when Christ, after his resurrection, but after his uh, uh, crucifixion on the cross, before his resurrection, I guess is when he went down and preached mm -hmm. the spirits. Yeah. I, even though it doesn't mention that those the lost folks there were in torment, mm -hmm. I think they were. Mm -hmm. And it's more or less saying, you know, I, I told you what was going to happen. You didn't yeah. listen. You were stiff-necked. Yeah. And then he takes those that didn't leave that were in that chamber mm -hmm. and carries them. That's good, yeah. I think it probably were in torment. Yeah, that's good, um, and I agree. Uh, so um, it, it reminds me of something we should lock down in our heads, too. There are some people that teach that um, salvation is the greatest theme of the Scriptures. Now, salvation is one of the great themes of the Scriptures, but the number one theme of the Scriptures is the glory of God and how He deserves and will get the glory due His name. And so, yes, God is glorified in the redemption of repentant sinners. But make no mistake about it, God is also glorified in the judgment of unrepentant sinner rebels that never turn to Him. So that's why we can say God will get the glory due His name, even by those who never turn to Him, uh, even though his desire, we're told clearly in Scripture, is that everybody would repent. As he says in Ezekiel, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. I wish everybody would turn and live. And um, uh, I think that's so powerful, along with uh, the New Testament passage in Timothy, where he says, uh, God wills, God desires all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth. And he has... Uh, uh, he, he's a gentleman God. He stands at the door and knocks, but we've got to open the door of our hearts from inside. And if we don't, if we'd say, no, thank you, I'd rather be the Lord of my own life and you know, stay in rebellion against you, God, uh, then uh, he will be glorified on Judgment Day. That great white throne judgment will be something that brings him glory as much as the glory uh, that uh, he got uh, on the cross uh, by dying for the sins of the world so everyone could be saved. All right. Any other questions or thoughts from the Sheol discussion? Well, I love what happens in verse 8. 
David is suddenly overwhelmed in verses 8 through 10 with assurance and confidence. So he says in verse 8, Depart from me, all you workers of iniquity, for the Lord has heard the voice of my weeping. <laughs> I'm worried about what the enemies are all about, but uh, guess what? I'm about to get up out of this prayer closet, uh, you enemies, and you need to depart from me. Uh, don't start with me. <laughs> you ever had a friend you say, Don't start with me, Wilson. Don't start with me, uh, Davis or whoever it is. Don't start with me. He's been pouring his heart out to God, and all of a sudden, assurance and confidence burst from his pen. And it's amazing how spending some quiet time with Jesus can lead to an overwhelming sense that God is in control and that His purposes will prevail. So in the first part of verse 8, He commands evildoers to let Him be. And the second part of verse 8 is declarative. You can't mess with me. The Lord has heard my weeping. I like Psalm 56, 8. You number my wanderings, put my tears into your bottle. Are they not kept in your book? Isn't that neat? So what an image, right? That here you, I don't know about you, but when I'm in the ugly cry about something, when I'm just hurting over something, and I'm in tears about something, uh, you know, I'm, 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 a, I'm a wreck, you know? Hair disheveled, you know, and just oh, sometimes if you're really into that good cry and pout, there's snot coming out your nose and stuff, you know, all this different stuff. And uh, I wouldn't want those tears in a bottle at that point, you know, uh, mixing down the face with the other stuff, you know, the sweat and the, uh, the mess and stuff. But uh, the psalmist is confident that uh, God is remembering each of those tears. And I think about how uh, the book of Revelation tells us that um, there is something in, uh, that, that is in the heavenly temple that ascends along with incense. It's the prayers of the saints, you know. And one of the things we're doing in prayer is saying, God, there's so much I don't understand down here. I, I don't understand down here. And uh, we're, we're told when we pray for uh, people to be saved, when we pray for uh, family prodigals to uh, come back to Jesus or come to Jesus in the new birth experience, uh, when we're told to pray about the things that aren't right and the things that hurt children and others in life and things like that, um, that uh, God is hearing those, He's processing those, and the judge of all the earth will do right. And so that's good to be able to know. Um, the Lord has heard my plea for help. The Lord accepts my prayers. These statements show David's trust. So that's why we call it a trouble and trust psalm. I'm in trouble, Lord, but I trust you, is, is the theme of these kind of psalms. I don't know what your trouble is this evening, but I can tell you, trust the Lord. Trust the Lord. Uh, in these in days of inflation, some people are having financial concerns. You know, almost all of us are. Uh, trust the Lord. Uh, in these days uh, where so many lies are being told in so many different ways and so many fast ways like the internet and smartphones to our children, to our grandchildren, our nephews, our nieces, our family members, our friends, our neighbors, the people we coach, the people we teach, the people we pastor, uh, there's a lot there to pray about, you know. Um, you know, I, I thought about that with that passage this morning. Here Paul is imprisoned in Rome because he wants to keep getting the gospel to other places. And here he hears that these, these wonderful dear saints in Colossians are in danger of uh, getting off in false teaching, you know. And he, he's like, look, I can't do it all. <laughs> Y'all got to step up back at, the, back at your church and, and, and stick with the gospel. Stick with the word of God. 
uh, you know, and, and how heartbreaking it must be to missionaries who go overseas to spread the gospel to hear about uh, people departing from the faith in their hometown, their home church, their family, and, and other things like that, you know. Uh, but it often happens. Um, so I think about times of testimony about a time we were struggling and prayed and then you were just overwhelmed with trusting God. Uh, can anybody think about a time uh, that you were hurting and in pain and you kind of poured it out to the Lord and uh, he, he met you there? I'm trying to think of any specific instance for me, but I wanted to give you guys opportunities to share about a time like that. David's so honest with us in such a great way uh, here. I remember when I was finishing up uh, seminary at uh, Southeastern Seminary, getting my Master of Divinity. And um, I had some different offers related to coaching soccer, being a teacher at a Christian school. Uh, and uh, I had a heart for missions, but I really thought the next step for me would be being a minister of students and going to a church somewhere and being a minister of students. And um, I had uh, pursued the leads that I knew of, and I'd uh, put my resume into Southeastern's uh, little pool there where churches looking for pastors and youth pastors can go look and things like that. But I was coming uncomfortably close to graduation and didn't have that call yet to go serve a church somewhere. And so I thought, oh, do I need to put these things together where I can teach here and coach there and that'll put things together in the meantime? Sometimes you got to do stuff like that. But I was just, uh, you know, uh, I remember a time just before the Lord, Lord, you know, um, I moved my uh, wife from Denver to here because I needed to graduate from a school I could recommend. And so we left the Denver Seminary, came over here to the uh, Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary. And once upon a time, you couldn't trust that one, but now it's a great one. And uh, Denver, I love, and I hope they're doing well today, but I didn't like some of the things that were happening there. So I made the transfer and stuff. And so, Lord, we followed you, you know, and we've, we've done this and I got this wife and I got this baby, you know, and stuff like that. And I just remember pouring his heart at the Lord. And, and I was making myself physically anxious, uh, sick and stuff like that. And uh, I remember just uh, a real uh, wrestling match time of prayer with the Lord where I just, uh, uh, you know, uh, put it all out there and then said, but I trust you anyway, Lord, you know, yeah, you, your, your hands on my life and I believe you and I'll follow you. And before I sign on the dotted line with some of these other things and stuff, I'm just going to wait on you. And the very next morning, I heard the sweetest sound I'd ever heard before. It was a call from Waynesboro, Virginia. The man's name was Bud Hammond. And he said, Bud, he said, uh, Danny, I'm the uh, chairman of the Minister of Students. It's the Associate Pastor of Youth and Evangelism. That was the title. Associate Pastor of Youth and Evangelism Committee here in Waynesboro, Virginia. And um, uh, we, have a, uh, we, we have gotten your resume from the seminary there, and we've looked through... Uh, a hundred resumes or so, and we want you to know that the way our church does things is uh, we have uh, come all the way to putting your name at the top, and we won't work with any other candidate until we figure out whether you're interested and want to pursue this or not. And I said, oh, thank you, Lord. And it was. It was the perfect fit for us. We wound up serving four years as the youth pastor and then another 17 as the pastor. Uh, and from there, heard a sweet voice like that. Gary Phillips, once upon a time from here, or JJ or somebody, you know, I forget all that. That was a wild time uh, six years ago now. Uh, but, uh, you know, you just pour your heart out, you know, and God... Um, uh, you trust Him anyway, and sometimes it takes a little longer than that to hear and get the direction, but make no mistake about it, we can 
in the midst of our trouble, trust the Lord and He provides. Anybody else got a story to share? Well, look at verse 10. He says, Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Um, and uh, such, a, such a great statement. It reminds me, as put here, what does the statement of verse 10 remind, uh, remind us of? And it, um, the statement in verse 3, in the sense that as David started to pray, he was kind of shaking. Uh, now that he has left things in the hands of God, it's his enemies that he anticipates are shaking. <laughs> and I think that's so great because as he moved closer to God, he wasn't so worried about his enemies anymore. And that reminds me of, uh, you've probably seen children playing, you know, and uh, getting a little too um, pushy with each other or something like that. And then one of the children uh, that's about to hit the other sees the child run toward their parent, you know, and he starts to chase, chase him. But that child gets to the parent and gets up underneath him like that. And as the other child comes up, he stops all of a sudden like, oh, now it's not just this kid. It's this kid's dad, too, you know. And uh, the kid that's in the shelter of his mom or dad there uh, kind of sticks out his tongue at the one chasing him like, mm -hmm. <laughs> you can't get me. You can't get me. And uh, I think that's what David's doing in verse 10. Uh, Let all my enemies be ashamed and greatly troubled. Let them turn back and be ashamed suddenly. Because he said, I might not be big enough to face this stuff. But this guy behind me can. <laughs> My God behind me can. So do you understand who's moved in this psalm? The enemies still out, entrenched outside. David still has to face the day with all of its bad circumstances and stuff. God is still on his throne. It's still the year that he's reigning, right? It's the child of God. The psalmist who has moved from his eyes being on his difficulties, his enemies, his circumstances, to having his eyes on God. And far from, uh, far, when he was far from God, when he wasn't thinking about God trying to work it out himself, he was like that rat in the maze, you know, just frantically trying to get out, you know. Uh, and what he doesn't realize is that there's no top on the maze. He can just look up and be pulled out. <laughs> and we can too when we're in that uh, kind of rat race, uh, so to speak. Now that he's confessed his sin, drawn close to God, he has renewed confidence not in himself, but in the God of his salvation. And that reminds us of James 4, 8, draw near to God, and what will He do? Draw near to you. Isn't that right? Uh, I put here for you, I think, Richard Baxter's, he was a pastor in the 1600s, and I just love these lines that he gives here. Oh, keep up life and peace within, if I must feel thy chastening rod. Yet kill not me, but kill my sin, and let me know that thou art my God. Oh, give my soul some sweet foretaste of that which I shall shortly see. Let faith and love cry to the last, come Lord, I trust myself with thee. Isn't that good? Richard Baxter, let's pray. Thank you for joining us for today's edition of Tabernacle Today. To learn more about The Tabernacle, please visit our website at www.thetabernaclefamily.org. There you may access additional Tabernacle Today podcasts as well as other resources. If you don't have a church home or happen to be visiting the area, we'd love to welcome you to one of our weekly services. Thanks for listening, and we look forward to seeing you back for another edition of Tabernacle Today.